0: All right. So this morning, what I'd like to do is, um, you know, I've been processing uh, for a few weeks just kind of all the Terry Virgo messages uh, he preached here, and then at Living Way, and then at Celebration Conference. And there was a lot of content, and and there's a lot a lot of things that impacted me. I felt personally like deeply impacted, like you know, you feel like like. Uh, uh, the train track got switched and it was a significant moment for me. I'm not sure exactly all the ways, but, um, John Held was here last week. Um, a lot of people were sick, but uh, if you missed it, go back and listen to it. Cause he was, he was kind of processing some of that too. And I want to, I, I was jealous that he got to do that and I didn't. So I'm still doing it. It's a little late. I know it's been a few weeks, but Uh, that's just where I'm at. So that's what I do. I come up here and I share what God's doing with me. Right. And hopefully bring you along for the ride. So what I want to do, I, as I've been pondering this and I got to spend some time with them. And, um, one of the things that impacted me the most was the sense that God, here's a guy who God has done pretty astounding things through, but he's thoroughly kind of unimpressed with himself. And as surprised as you are that any of this stuff has happened. And, it, and so you start going, well, what is it about him? Like, God, why, I don't know if it does this to you or not, but I think, well, God, why not use me that way? Like, I want to see some cool stuff. Um, uh, yeah, he, he was telling me a story. Um, our elder team got to hang out with him, and he was telling a story about how Confluence started. And one of the stories he told was doing a Wednesday night prayer meeting in somebody's house and it grew so quickly and so kind of miraculously that the house was so packed with people that people were outside listening through the door and in every room of the house people were packed in standing room only and up the stairs to the upstairs and all around upstairs and he was wandering from room to room from threshold to threshold preaching and I'm thinking That's biblical, man. That's like that's amazing. And so, what is it? Because it's not his impressive personality. And listening to the messages, one of the things I saw was that there's this sense in him that he draws a straight line between the grace of God and just abiding in Christ. And that's why he prays for hours a day, is that he knows he can't do anything, not anything. Apart from God, and that's what hit me: is that I felt my inadequacy is my self-reliance, my self-sufficiency, and so that's what I want to talk about this morning, and because I think it's at the root or one of the roots of what's wrong with humanity. It's part of what's wrong with you, <laughs> down at your core. Uh, it's, it's the diagnosis. If you went to uh, 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 to Jesus and said, "Diagnose." My spiritual condition. Why do I do the things I do? Why do things go? Why why am I the way I am? One of the things he would point out is you're just trying to do it yourself. You actually think you can. So I want to start maybe what may seem like an odd place, which is Genesis 3, right there at the beginning. This is the diagnosis. Genesis 3, just do 1 through 3. It says... Now the serpent which is Satan in physical form, okay? Don't know why he picked the serpent. But that's how it's described. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. Okay, so the serpent is challenging first what God said. Did God really say? God had told them, you can't eat of this, you can go anywhere, this whole thing is yours, this, 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 the, the riches of this garden, it belongs to you. It's for your enjoyment and for your management. You get to work in it. You get to play in it. You get to enjoy it. But there's this one tree I don't want you to eat from. And Satan immediately challenges what God says. Everyone in this conversation, Adam, Eve, and Satan, knows exactly what God had actually said. He's not asking he's not asking for information when he says, did God really say? He's not saying, I can't, I can't remember. He knows, she knows, Adam knows, everybody knows what God said. What he's doing is he's trying to put doubt. He's giving her the opportunity to question what God said. The serpent is tempting Eve to put her judgment over God's words. He's inviting her to put God's words on trial in her own mind, thereby placing her intellect, wisdom, will, and perception above gods. You stand in judgment over what God said. And you decide if it's legitimate or not. Feels good. You're right. I should analyze what God said and decide if I believe it's okay or not for him to restrict me from eating of this tree. So Eve tells the serpent what God said. Interestingly enough, adding to what God said, God did not say don't touch it. That's the first example of Phariseeism in the Bible, is right here at the beginning. Adding rules that God did not create. But that's another sermon. So the serpent directly then challenges what God said. First he plants doubt. Oh, you, shouldn't you be the judge over what God said or didn't say? She responds. She passes that test. She says, well God said this. He says, okay, now he's going to directly challenge it in verses 4-7. to seven. He says, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. It's a direct contradiction to what God said. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves one cloth. So suddenly she sees, she sees this fruit, and she goes, Oh, it looks great. I know it's going to taste great. And I think the real temptation, Boy, it'll make me wise. Not wise in like the positive way that the Bible says be wise. Not wise like Solomon. (laughs) Wise in her own eyes. It's what Paul warns us about in 1 Corinthians, if you remember that. that. Man's wisdom versus God's wisdom. God's wisdom is foolishness to mankind. It looks like foolishness, but it's actually Wisdom. There's a difference. And she, this is what, this is the kind of wisdom. She goes, I'll be smart enough. I'll have the knowledge and the insight and the perception that God has. I won't have to do what God says anymore. I won't be dependent on Him anymore to tell me what's true and what's not. I'll know myself, I'll become like God. You see, right from the beginning, foundational temptation, at least one of the foundational temptations for us as human beings, is to simply be wise in our own eyes and do our own thing, and to trust our own judgment over God's, and to be the judge and juror and the God of what's true and what's not. What we have to obey and what we don't have to obey. And the minute we do that, we actually cut ourselves off from him. And that's what you see happen to Adam and Eve, right? They're immediately cut off. Suddenly they see how their own weakness and what do they do they cover it i'm exposed so i'm going to cover it up and pretend like i'm not a weak frail naked human being and i'm going to walk around pretending like everything's fine and i've got this under control because i've got wisdom my own wisdom it's really interesting to me because once you kind of pick this thread in Genesis, kind of pick like a sweater, you know, you pick it and you start pulling at it, you see it everywhere. I mean, everywhere in the Bible. I mean, from Genesis all the way to Revelation, you see example after example that where things go wrong is when someone takes things into their own hands. Is when someone says, "I'm fine. I got this under control. Just let me do it, God." And they go do their own thing, and they walk independently of God. Terry talked about Jonah. That's a great example. I mean, they're everywhere. I'll just get on a boat and go the opposite way of where God told me to go. It'll be fine. Over and over and over again, this is a theme. But I want to kind of skip all that because we don't have time. But really, you could almost do one of those, like, just drop your Bible and let it fall open, and you'll find an example. Let's go all the way forward to Jesus, because Jesus picks up this idea in John 15. I think this is really kind of like the apex of this theme in the Bible, is where Jesus talks about this in John 15. Look at the first 11 verses. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. If you keep my command, commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So Jesus picks a metaphor that's really kind of prominent in the Old Testament. Um, there's a lot of symbolism here we can't go into, but Jesus is basically saying, I'm divine, whereas before, Israel is divine. That's a really interesting kind of angle to look at the story. But the most important thing here is to understand the analogy he's making. That Jesus, if it wasn't clear, Jesus is the vine. He says that several times. You're the branches, okay? But think about how a branch relates to a vine, okay? Now, around here, we don't have a lot of grapevines. You can imagine a tree if that helps you, right? What happens to a tree branch? And how is it connected to a tree? If it's not connected to the tree trunk, what happens to the branch? It withers and it dies. So Jesus is the vine, where the branches, every branch is going to be addressed by the vine dresser. That's real I love that part, that little that little line in there where where it says, like either by the vine dresser being the father is going to cut off a branch because it does not bear fruit. And it's going to dry up and wither, it becomes a twig. A useless twig on the ground or if it does bear fruit he leaves you alone and never bothers you no it's not what it says he says if it bears fruit it gets pruned so that it'll bear more fruit everybody gets the knife everybody i like to think i have a habit a bad habit of thinking that if i'm really working hard for jesus he'll leave me alone nothing bad will happen no trimming no hardship no correction no conviction no discipline just he'll just he'll go cotton's under control he's doing well i'll leave him alone and just bless him and that's not my has not been my experience i don't know about you i think the giggles indicate that we've all had the same experience. That's comforting in and of itself, the giggles, right? That, that we all know how it really is, which is the discipline of God, which is the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the correction of friends, um, and, as Israel was talking about, and, and also just hardship. Hardship in your life is discipline. And it, it does this thing to you, right, that, that, that prunes back the little dead places, The places that aren't bearing fruit in your life and and allows for more fruit to come. But the cut, have you ever seen like a tree that's been properly pruned? It looks like it's been massacred. It looks like some some crazy person (laughs) has killed this tree. And you go, man, like there's no I see nothing good on it. It just looks like it's been reduced to this ugly thing with no leaves. No beautiful branches. It's not swaying in the breeze. It's like a stick with a bunch of sticks sticking out, and it's unsightly. But then you wait a season, and what comes out of it is it's more lush, it's more green, it's more fruitful. So either way, everybody gets addressed by the father, by the vine dresser. But what's the point here? I think the main point here is that the branch gets all of its life from the vine. That's the repeated idea that Jesus gives. The branch gets all, all meaning 100% of its life from the vine. If you sever the connection between the branch and the vine, the vine immediately stops bearing fruit, immediately stops growing, and starts dying. Immediately. It's not like a crystal. D.A. Carson uses this as a counterexample. Like crystals that form kind of on their own. That's, we're not crystals. <laughs> we're branches. And this is how we are. This is the truth. There's nothing in the branch itself that generates its own life in any way. If it becomes disconnected, it dies. The branch has no identity apart from the vine at all. This is the second part of that. Not only just life and death... Like if Jesus stops breathing life into you, you cease to, 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 to live. If Jesus stops holding you together as, as a human being, you cease to exist. Your existence, your life is 100% derived from him, whether you believe it or not. It's a reality. But what else is true is your identity, your purpose, your meaningfulness as a human being, is not derived from yourself, it's derived from him. If he ceases to exist but somehow lets you live, you are nothing better than a meaningless twig dead on the ground that just gets trampled and burned in a fire. Your entire identity, purpose, and meaning is derived by him and is dependent on your connection to him. It's a powerful thing for him. You see how this is the opposite of what Satan told Eve in the garden. Oh, you don't need God. You just need to have that wisdom, that knowledge for yourself. If you had the right information, you wouldn't need him. And dependence on God is a bad thing. It's a scary thing. You shouldn't shouldn't seek it. Just take his place. This is what makes our disobedience and self-reliance so foolish. Foolish is a nice way of putting it. Self-reliance is standing on a tree branch and cutting it off with a saw at the same time. I'm good. Things are solid. Things are are good. I think I got this life thing. I'm going to cut this branch. (laughs) Cut it right off. I don't need God. It's foolish. We would look at a person who was actually doing that and yell at them from the ground and say, Stop. <laughs> Stop. You don't see what you're doing, but you're about to kill yourself, right? You're cutting off your life source, pretending like you can be your own source. This is what Eve did, and then Adam, and then this is what we do all the time. It's our constant temptation. There's also the question of bearing fruit, right? The reason the vine has branches is to bear much fruit. So we could say the reason you exist, on kind of a basic level, is to bear fruit for the vine. All right? if, if an orange tree doesn't make oranges, I mean, what good is it? It's not doing its the thing it's fundamentally built for. If it doesn't bear fruit at all, it's cut off. If it does bear fruit, then it gets pruned. Why? So that it will bear more fruit. This is the discipline of God, which involves both the conviction of the Holy Spirit and hardship. If you look at verse 7, 8, and 16, they all indicate that this fruit is the stuff that results from prayer. Because this is where prayer comes in. Like, all this fruit is like, well, what's the fruit? What is it? Can we identify, can we name the fruit? Is it oranges or apples, right? Well, we start with this, the fruit is just the stuff that comes from prayer, okay, to start with. I think it's You know, we can see in verse 10, 11, 12, 16, and 27. This is all in your notes, by the way, which are back there. If you didn't get them, I forgot to tell you. I'm rusty. If you look at those verses, I think you can find at least four things. One is obedience to Christ. That's one of the fruits on the tree. Just doing what he says. Obeying the commands of Jesus. Secondly, we can see the joy of Christ. That your joy may be full. That my joy will be in you, and that your joy, that joy, will be full. That's verse 11. Love for one another is verse 12. You know, if you're, if you're full of the joy of Christ, and you're doing what he says, obeying him, remember I've said this to you before, I think this was Mike Pilavachi, I didn't come up with this, but God's love language is obedience. That's how you express your love To God as you obey him, right? So whenever you see obedience in the Bible, think love. Whenever you see love, think obedience. Like think of them as, you know, inextricably linked together. Um, So love for one another, and then fourthly, bearing witness to Christ to the world. That's verses 16 and 27. So that's just four things, right? Just four fruits we can identify right here in these verses. So if you're wondering, well, what does he mean by fruit? That doesn't mean just good vibes, that just doesn't mean sort of happiness. Or it, 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 there's specific things Jesus is looking for as fruit. And there's obedience, joy, love, and bearing witness. All right? I think it's also reasonable to look at Paul as picking up this idea in Galatians where he talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Right? So let's look at those. Galatians 5, 22 to 23 He lists them out. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, patience, which is, which is patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So these fruits are not grown without effort. You ever tried to be patient? It's kind of hard. It doesn't come as fast as we like, so it requires patience to get patience. It's, it's kind of, it's, it's not fair. It's like the whole humility problem. The more humble you are, the more prideful you get about being humble. And then it's just a terrible cycle. Patience is very similar, right? God, give me patience now! Why is it taking so long for me to be patient? It's hard. It takes effort, doesn't it? I mean, let's not not pretend like it doesn't. These things aren't hard. It's hard to be loving. It's easy when the other person is loving you back. Okay, that's... Nobody gets points for that. Okay, let me just... like. If someone loves you and you love them back, that's a wonderful thing and it's fun, but it's not like it's costing you anything. What costs you is loving someone that's not loving you well. That's the kind of love Jesus, when Jesus says love, that's what he means. He means love the way I'm loving you, which is not exactly reciprocal. Peace is hard. Kindness is hard because people aren't kind. It's a one-way thing over and over and over again. It's not effortless, but the hard thing is they're not grown by trying to grow them. Ever just take joy as one example. Ever, you know, Try to have joy. You don't get joy, you just get frustration. You're trying to have peace, and you get anxious about not having peace. You try... You put effort into being those things, then it becomes difficult. The way you get the happiness is the one of all, you know, our Constitution says we're guaranteed the right to the pursuit of happiness, but no one gets happiness by pursuing happiness. You get happiness by pursuing things that make you happy. It's a big difference. These are the same way. The branch's effort in remaining is in remaining connected to the vine. That's how you get the fruit of the spirit. As you walk in the spirit, that's what how Paul would put it in Galatians: walk in the spirit, follow the spirit, do what the Holy Spirit says, stay full of the spirit. You will exhibit the fruit of the spirit. Same thing is true here. You abide in the vine to grow fruit. If you try to up- cut yourself off from the vine, as a met- so that's what you're doing when you're trying to say, I'm going to be more joyful. I will be more joyful. I will be more peaceful. I will be patient. I will be. Right now, I must be patient. And you buckle down to be more patient. And you get frustrated because you're not being as patient as quickly as you hoped you would be. What are you doing? You're cutting yourself off from the vine in order to bear fruit. It makes no sense. I'm going to bear fruit by disregarding the fact that I'm dependent on the vine in order to do it. So you don't get joy by pursuing joy. You get joy by pursuing the joy giver. You don't get patience by pursuing patience. You get patience by pursuing the patient one. You don't become loving as God demands by pursuing love. You become loving by pursuing the one who is love. You get the fruit by abiding in the vine. That's the point. trying to generate your own joy, love, peace, etc. is the same thing as a dead twig trying to grow grapes. You look ridiculous. (laughs) You look, I'm going to say it, you look ungrateful. That wasn't even in my notes, it just came to me. Can you translate that into Spanish, Israel? No, you can't? Alright. Good luck. All so that was free. That was free. I can hear the laughter in your hearts. Um, so, so I want to. I I said there's tons of examples in the Bible. I want to give you one. That, that this tension between effort. It's not effort. Effortless. It sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth, doesn't it? You're saying it's not effortless. It's hard. It's difficult. It's it's work. It's a spiritual work. But then you're saying if you try to get it, you won't get it, and and like, I don't understand, right? Well, disciples probably felt the same way. I want to give you an example that hopefully will help. It comes from Mark chapter 6. I'm not going to read it, but you can read it on your own. It's a familiar story in Mark 6. It's also in all the Gospels. Jesus' fame has been increasing with every miracle, okay? As you would expect. I mean, if there's a guy walking around your town who's healing the sick, raising the dead, doing all sorts of miracles like that, people are going to gather around. And they did. Eventually, um, we get this story where over 5,000 people, which probably if you count children, is at least double that in terms of actual human beings there following Jesus around. It was That's a lot especially for any time period that's a lot of people. For this time period, it's sort of unheard of. People don't gather in crowds and go to parties and, you know, you know, outdoor festivals and things like this is this is wild. Five thousand plus people, maybe ten thousand people are gathering around, and Jesus. They had to go out into the wilderness to fit everybody, and Jesus is teaching, and people are just eating it up. They're just, he's great, he's amazing, he's he's our hero. He's, you know, people are starting to say, I think maybe he's the Messiah. Maybe he'll give me a miracle today. He's going to save us all from the oppression of Rome and our terrible situation and poverty we're in. He's going to save us. The more miracles he does, the more this is said. And it culminates with this moment where the disciples come to Jesus and say, hey, these people have to eat. And there's nowhere around here to eat. We need to send them away so they can go eat. They're going to starve. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. And he does that famous miracle where he takes the little boys, loaves, and fishes, and he multiplies them to 10,000 people, maybe more. Feeds them all with food left over. It's astounding. Can you imagine being there and eating the miracle bread, right? <laughs> eating the miracle fish, being like, what is happening? So this, John gives us this fun detail where he says that, you know, because Jesus sends the disciples across the, the Sea of Galilee to go to Bethsaida, where they can kind of get away from everybody. And Jesus separates from them and goes farther into the wilderness to get alone and to pray. And John tells us that also what, what was going on was they were going, they were, he had heard that they were planning to kidnap Jesus, these adoring fans were going to kidnap Jesus and force him to be their king. I don't know how that was going to work out, But these were crazed fans, okay? So Jesus, you know, I wonder if he was an introvert. You know, maybe I'm projecting a little bit. But he's like, I got to get away from these people. You guys go across. I'll meet you later. Jesus goes and prays. When the sun goes down and the people have kind of dispersed, he comes down and he's going to sneak across the sea. And there's no boat. What does Jesus do? He just goes anyway. (laughs) He just walks. So I love that Jesus' miracle of walking on the water was to get away from people. But that's what's happening. It's very practical. He's got to get over there. He doesn't want to stay here and get kidnapped, so he's walking across. And there's this storm, right? There's a storm, and the wind is pushing against the guys in the boat who have gone ahead of Jesus. and So they're still out there, hours later, rowing against the wind and barely moving an inch struggling, rowing. And Jesus comes, I imagine his hands behind his back and he's strolling. And John also tells us that Jesus was trying to slip past them so they wouldn't see him. I love that! He's like, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go. And he's strolling past in the middle of this storm. So picture it. He's hours behind them. And they're barely moving and they're just going oh! Right, and he catches up to him and is just strolling past them. And Peter sees him out in the storm. He thinks he's a ghost, and then the, the famous story that comes after Jesus says, "Come out!" And he gets out and he walks on the water, almost drowns. But what I want you to see here is that there's another story, several chapters. I think it's chapter four in Mark, where there's another boat. And another storm in the same sea, but this time Jesus is in the boat. And what was Jesus doing? He was asleep. There's a storm, and he's asleep in the back of the boat. They get frustrated. They wake him up, and he calms the sea, calms the storm, and they row on their way. That's the difference between Jesus being in the boat and not in the boat. But in both situations, they have to row. When Jesus gets in the boat with the disciples after Peter walks on the water, the same thing happens. The storm is calmed and they go. They get on their way. This is the difference. It's not that you you, you get to stop rowing and Jesus is going to be the wind. It's going to push your boat along. You still have to work. You still have to put effort in. It's still hard. It's still hard being patient. Like having the fruit of patience doesn't mean it's easy to have patience. It's that you now have the ability to exhibit that fruit by the Spirit because Jesus is in the boat with you. And it doesn't mean there's no more storms. It doesn't mean that, well, if Jesus is in the boat with me, we'll never have a storm because the first story tells us different. Jesus was un- Interested in the storm, it was a non thing. He was asleep. <laughs> he only calmed the storm because the disciples had a lack of faith, and he was showing them, "Look, this storm is just not a big deal to me." It was such a not. It was such not a big deal that I was sleeping. I was unaffected by it whatsoever. Because there's still storms. He's and Jesus even in the second story. Was not worried about them or concerned that they were struggling on the boat and he was just going to walk on by. The storm is not a problem for him. I wonder if maybe the reason why he was walking on by was that he wanted them to learn this lesson that they're just not enough. I think one of the worst lies in our culture right now is when people say, You're enough. Sweetheart, you're enough. Believe in yourself. Let let me be a voice of truth to you this morning. You are not enough. You're not anywhere close. You can't move your boat through the storm that you're in. There's no chance. There's no rowing technique that you can come up with that would allow you to cut your way through the storm that you're in or the storm that's coming that you're not in yet. You're not enough. You are a branch on the vine. Your strength, your life, your identity, your meaning, your purpose is not derived from you and your effort. It is derived from being connected to the vine. It is viding in Christ. That is where you get all of that from. That's the difference between rowing, doing your life, Seeking God with him and seeking him alone. So, in Mark 6 and the other places where we see these stories, I went through and looked okay, where's the stuff that I do? Like, what do I, what's the effort? What's the rowing? Right? What, where are the things that I can actually do? I only see two, which is fun because I don't need more than two things. (laughs) I can't keep up, right? One is prayer. Two is obedience to the commands of Jesus. Those are the two things I see us told to do by Jesus in his vine metaphor. Obedience is how you know you love him. I said obedience is God's love language. I think that's really memorable and a great way to think about it. So what are his commands? Well, it's all in the word, okay, to start with. It's all just right here. Don't overly mystify that. Well, God, I'm waiting here for you to tell me what to do. Well, I gave you like a bunch of things. I wrote them down for you, <laughs> right, right, right here. Like, love one another, serve the body of Christ. You know, there's a pick one. Just pick, pick one and start. Right, just obey my commands. It's all in this word. So expose yourself to it in every way that you can. Read it, listen to it, discuss it, hear it, preach. You're doing it right now. Congratulations. Number one, checked off for today. Right? Just expose yourself to it. If you have a hard time reading it and comprehending it, listen to it. Uh, just find a way. Like, just figure out what has God already told us to do. And let me, let me just list them out, and I'll start with one and start just doing that thing. Your love for Jesus cannot remain just a feeling you have in your heart. If it is not expressed in obedience, John would say, you don't have it. You don't, you're not loving him if you're not doing what he says. The other is prayer. I think this is prayer, I almost, maybe a definition for prayer was it's just a verbal expression of your dependence on God. If I could strip it down to like its most simple definition, it's you're saying, I don't have the answer, I must ask someone else. Jesus is interesting, right after these same people, the 5,000, Right after this event, he teaches them about how he's the bread of life. You can read it in John right after this story. He says, I'm the bread of life. It's the same idea. What is eating? It's acknowledging, one way to think about it is acknowledging that my hunger cannot be satisfied by me. It must come from outside of me. And Jesus says, well, that's, that's what this, our relationship is like. I'm the bread of life. If you want life, you, gotta, you can't get it in yourself. All you can have, all you have is a hunger and a need for it. What you need is the bread of life. It's the same idea. So prayer is eating. Prayer is, is saying, I'm, I'm hungry, Jesus. I'm weak. I'm needy. I'm Adam and Eve, naked in the garden and exposed and weak and helpless. And I'm acknowledging that I am not enough myself. I don't have the power or the strength or the insight or the wisdom or the ability or the hope to pull this off by myself. I must have you help me. And that's what I saw in Terry Virgo was a guy walking around just going, I can't do any of this (laughs) by myself. And he's gotten so good at it and so practiced at it. It just flows out of him. That's what I want. I want to live that way. I want my effort to be the effort that, to, to remain abiding or connected to Christ, not the effort just to do my thing and to grow my own fruit. We often tell each other to let go. Let go and let God. But I don't think you can let go of something you don't actually have in the first place. It's better just to abide in Christ, get behind the oars of obedience and prayer, and start rowing. And it doesn't feel like it's enough. You know, that's one of the things that happens to you when you say, okay, that's what I'm going to do, that's what I'm going to focus on. I'm just going to pray and ask God for help, and I'm going to do my best to just do what he says. Whatever, whatever I see in the word of God, I'm going to try to do. I'm just going to do it. And it feels like this is not enough effort. I should be putting more effort into making my life be to do what I'm called to do and to bear fruit for his kingdom, but it is. It's what He's instructed us to do. It's the great lesson of the disciples, and you see you can follow them through the New Testament, and you can see when they're doing it and when they're not. We can look at example after example after example of when they get in their own power, their own strength, and when they get Jesus in the boat with them. So I'd like to pray for us this morning that this would be our legacy. That we would exhibit the fruit of the Spirit not by trying to get them, but by trying to get to Christ. And I, I you know, if you're if that if Ed's word this morning connected with you, this is I think where you start is recognize that your way out of the hole you're in is abiding in Him and him abiding in you. So why don't we stand up together. God, we we all recognize in this moment that when we encounter these things from Jesus, that it's... It's what we want, but we we feel also feel our inadequacy. This is where we need the Holy Spirit. These are His fruits. This is His life. It's His callings. It's His purpose. And so I pray right now that. God, that you would, by your spirit, do a work in our hearts that revives us and renews us, as John preached last week, that awakes, awakens us up. God, that we would snap to attention. God, that you would teach us to pray. God, teach us to go to prayer first. Teach us to go to prayer as a first resort, not a last resort. Teach us to be dependent on you in our prayer. And God, give us the courage and the ability to obey what you tell us to do. God, show us the places in our lives where we're failing to obey you. And God, help us to see how that's a lack of love for you. And that you would renew those areas, prune back those areas of our life that are not bearing fruit where we're failing to obey you. God, that you would just prune us back. God, that it wouldn't take a lot of effort to prune us. God, that we would be quick to hear your, your voice saying, hey, hey, I, I, I need you to do this or I need you to stop doing that. God, that you would attune our ear to your, to your pruning this morning. God, help us to respond not by just more determination, but by plugging more into you, by pursuing you with more fervor, with more intensity, with more consistency, with more faithfulness. So God, I pray for anyone here who is flailing right now, flailing just in weakness, feels... Overwhelmed by just life. God, they've just been spinning their wheels and not getting traction and just feel like quitting, retreating back to passivity. God, I pray right now that you would encourage them that they, not only are they in you, but you are in them that we are unified with you. And God, I pray that that truth would become real right now by your spirit. God, we love you and we want to obey you. Teach us and help us with that. In the name of Jesus, amen.